0: Well, if you still have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 11, that's where I want to speak from today. Those verses that we read together, sometimes you just don't get to always preach what you plan on preaching, and then you preach what you feel in, in whatever way the Lord moves about in your heart and mind as you're reading the Word what you're supposed to do. So this is where we are today again in Acts chapter 11, and I trust God will bless his word. The blessings of the Lord make one rich, is what the writer of Proverbs says. In the early church, we're certainly basking in the blessing of the Lord, as we're reading. If you read the book of Acts, by the time we get to chapter 11, the Spirit was definitely moving uh, through the gospel with great power. Um The risen Christ was proving to be not just the Messiah promised to the Jews, but also the hope for the Gentiles as well. And men were finding themselves in uncomfortable positions and situations, having to get past their prejudices and their misconceptions about what they thought the Savior was going to be and what he was going to do exactly. And they were discovering that God was able to save all sorts of men from all kinds of places. And it's funny that, in a lot of ways, the church is still having to get over those kinds of prejudices and those kinds of um, barriers that we sort of built up. We still need God to break down our misconceptions about what kinds of people God saves and how God works. Too often, we're still blinded by those we see as lost causes. I mean, even if we never would say it, we all have to admit there are times we look at people and think, well, he's too far gone. She'll never get it. She's never... Can be redeemed and some from our persuasion are even in our mind saying they're not elect there's no way but god gets us past that by saving people that we think might be unredeemable and we need to be reminded often that there are no obstacles too high for god's grace to overcome But on the other hand, we also think because we're doing the right things, avoiding the wrong things, since our theology is good, or at least better than most, or that we follow certain principles, then we seem to think everything will go smoothly and right, and there's a ditch on both sides of that. Sometimes as Reformed Baptists, we need to be reminded that what we really need in our church and in our lives is the same thing that happened in the book of Acts. And that was that the hand of the Lord was on the people of God. That the hand of the Lord was on a situation. And that the hand of the Lord was on the church. I don't typically do this. Concentrate on one little bitty part of a passage. But I think this is a very interesting phrase. The hand of the Lord. It's employed in the Old Testament Often, but in the New Testament, three times, all by Luke. One, in the very beginning of Luke's gospel, he refers to John the Baptist as one whose life, obviously, the hand of the Lord was upon. And then he uses it here. And then later in chapter 13, when there's a magician who's hindering the work of the gospel, you may remember. And so Saul and Barnabas there, um, rebuke this magician and tell them, tell him the hand of the Lord is going to be upon you and it's not in a good way. So what's interesting in the Old Testament It's used a lot of times and it's used both in a bad way, the hand of the Lord is going to be upon you and it's not going to be a good thing, but also as a blessing, the hand of the Lord is going to be upon you. And one of the reasons I chose Joshua chapter 4 is there was a lot of reading in there, but I wanted you to see right at the end of that passage that the Lord says um, through Joshua that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So in that passage, it was used both ways. The hand of the Lord was upon the people to bring them out of the uh, bondage of Egypt all the way finally to the promised land. But also with all those things he reminds us of, you go back and look, the hand of the Lord was upon Egypt in a bad way. From the plagues, to the crossing of the sea and the crashing back on and the enemies that are about to be destroyed to give them the promised land. So this phrase, the hand of the Lord, is used in the Old Testament in a good way and a bad way. And even in the New Testament, it's still used to symbolize that the hand of the Lord is heavy. And it can bring about retribution, divine judgment and justice. And it also can bring about the will of the Lord in grace and peace and mercy. And I think maybe the reason it's not used as much in the New Testament is because ultimately the hand of the Lord is seen in Christ, of course. Conquering the enemies, and that has been done once for all, and they are conquered. And so maybe that's why it's not used as much. But, John the Baptist, it was said, the Lord's hand was upon him. He preached faithfully, he lived faithfully, he died faithfully. He did all those things he did, though, not because John the Baptist was so great, but because the hand of the Lord was upon him. We need to be reminded of that. I, mean, I think later that the Bible says something like, even in the kingdom, John the Baptist would be the least. He's just a man, but he's a man that God chose, and God's hand was upon him. And so here in our text, the hand of the Lord is upon the preaching of the church, and a great number of people turned to the Lord as a result. And I believe Luke's usage of this phrase is very important. Because this is a major turning point for the church. A major turning point in history. The Jerusalem church has just been awakened to the fact that God has granted repentance of life to the Gentiles also. Peter's had a great awakening and had to go back to the church at Jerusalem and explain why he was eating with the forsaken Gentiles. Because God had poured out his grace on them too. The church is beginning to see this middle wall separation really has been broken down and obliterated. That there is no more Jew and Greek or Gentile. Or as Paul says, there's no slave, no free. But Christ is in all. Christ is all and in all. It was a major hurdle that wasn't jumped but destroyed. God just broke it down. Which was his plan all along. But we just need to be reminded that it's not that these preachers and these missionaries, if you will, that were sent out and spread out because of different reasons, persecution mostly, they might have been very skilled, they might have been good orators, but it wasn't their methods or their methodology. We can't just emulate emulate what they did and see the same results. I think that's why Luke reminds us the hand of the Lord was upon them. And so a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And so what I want to remind you about this morning is that what our church needs more than anything, not a better preacher, though y'all could use that, not a better budget, though that would be great. We have great resources, Jonathan mentioned, more resources be better. But what we need is the hand of the Lord to be upon us. What we need in our family. What we need as husbands. What we need for our children. What we need for our marriages. Is that the hand of the Lord be upon us. That gracious, empowering, merciful hand of the Lord. Again, if you trace it through the Old Testament. It signifies troubling Judgmental acts of God as well as the blessings of the Lord. The amazing thing is that sometimes God's hand was heavy upon his own people, but even then, the heavy hand of judgment and justice was also the kind and gracious and merciful hand of God at the same time. And so it might be for us in our lives. Here, the hand of the Lord was upon the church and it scattered. They were obeying what Jesus taught them. They were obeying the commission. Mind you, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Go ther- therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I think it's good just to be reminded often that God provides the enablement to go. You shall receive power from the Holy Spirit. And then he tells us to obey. Of course, the obedience to the commands of God are only possible for the people of God because we have the Spirit of God. And when we obey, God is honored and pleased with that. But when we obey, it's because God has given us the ability to obey. So all glory, as we've mentioned recently, several times, always goes back to God. So the New Testament church is amazing. And it's not wrong to try to look at the New Testament church and emulate it and say, what did they do and what did they practice? What did they abstain from? But at the end of the day, there's no magical formula. It is the hand of the Lord that we need above all these things. powerful, powerful God. So we need righteousness, which we don't have. We've been given that in Christ. We've been given his righteousness and we need to obey his commands, which we can't do. So he gives us the desire and the ability to obey those so that when we obey them, all the glory is to him. Ephesians one nineteen sort of points this out. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Even the Bible points us to that. Everything that's good is God. The Commands of God would be meaningless to us without the spirit of God within us. The song again that we, we sang last week. The desire to follow your commands could only come from you. And this is how the church deals with issues. By the hand of the Lord and the power of God that he gives to us. In fact, later on in verse 27 through 30, they dealt with the up, the, the soon coming um, famine because the hand of the Lord was upon them. They took up a collection and sent it to other churches to prepare and get ready and help them. The power of God is amazing and it does amazing things when the hand of the Lord is upon his people. I think too often we just forget, we don't recognize how powerful God really is. That he really is a God. Not only a God, he's the God. He is the only God. And he can do above and beyond all that we can think or ask. The Bible says exceedingly above that. He can save lost people, utterly lost people. And he can save people that we don't even think are very lost. But there's only lostness and salvation But he can take churches and do amazing things. He can take a little fellowship like this and do remarkable things. I'm so excited that today we're going to baptize two more people. That was going to be three, but eventually we're going to get that done. But almost close to 10 baptisms we've had uh, in this little fellowship. It's almost 10% of our whole group. That's pretty remarkable to me. And who knows what God will do and how he will train up and raise up men and women out of this fellowship. It's the power of God that's remarkable. His power is unfathomable to us. There's a passage in Habakkuk 3 that says, "His talking about God, his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light the light rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Speaking of the power of God, like in thunder and lightning, A.W. Pink commenting on Habakkuk 3 says, that passage I just read, he says, so inconceivable and so immense, so uncontrollable is the power of deity that the fearful convulsions which he works in nature conceal more then they reveal of His infinite power. I thought that was amazing. You hear the thunder roar and it shakes the earth, and the lightning the high blood, it blows up in the sky. And Pink says that's concealing more than it's even revealing. The power of God is so amazingly huge, and I point that out and say, "Man, sometimes our problems are huge. Sometimes the weight of this life is overbearing and heavy." But the God who conceals more than lightning and thunder in his power can certainly overcome our little problems with his hand. He can, he says, create a church that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. And I love hearing these stories about places like India. It's so foreign to us to, to be somewhere where 80% of the population would be something other than Christian. But yet the church is continually creeping into that and growing. The gospel overcomes the power of God, the hand of the Lord upon these people. We've read these stories week after week of these amazing, remarkable people who overcome great odds and keep preaching the gospel. The church keeps growing because the hand of the Lord is upon them. But what I want you to notice, too, in this passage that's so important, the hand of the Lord was upon them, and people were being saved, and that's important. But all too often, that's where we kind of stop, especially in the Baptist realm that we've all been a part of, the crusade mentality. Just get as many of them as you can in. Man, if, if the Lord saves one, it'd be worth it all. But the Bible never allows us to stop there. In fact, that's just the beginning. And the hand of the Lord is required mightily for any lost person to be awakened to where he is spiritually and to be saved and be redeemed out of the pit and to be brought into the family of God. That's a remarkable miracle, but God doesn't allow us to stop there. We have a great responsibility that doesn't end in baptizing new believers. And so we read here for an entire year in Antioch. They were teaching. For an entire year. And why would Luke point that out? I believe because he's wanting us to take something to heart that's very important. Number one, the importance of the teaching ministry. He says very little. Many believed and came to the Lord. And again, that's important. I mean, that's most important that people be saved. But then he says this important thing, but for a year, they stay there and they teach. So not only is the importance of the teaching ministry highlighted, but I think the goal of turning out disciples that are ready for ministry is highlighted. This word teach is very important. It's not the same as the word used a couple times earlier where people were preaching Jesus. Some preached only, you may recall reading that passage, some preached only to the Jews, but some preached to the Hellenists, which were a mix and mostly Gentiles. The word there for preach, there's several words in the New Testament translated preach. That word simply means just to speak. They spoke Jesus in his translated preach, which means really means to herald or announce. But this word here where they took a year and taught the people is not just to speak. It's a word which means to have or hold discourse with and instruct or to deliver a discourse to teach didactically. If you know what that word means. In fact, if you saw the word in the Greek New Testament, it almost looks like the word didactic. So it means to argue for, to convincingly teach. Probably daily, I'm sure. Maybe even multiple times a day. But they were lecturing, teaching, instructing. In other words, they were really following out that great commission. Past the Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were following out the and teach them all things I have taught you, or whatsoever I have taught you. That is what kind of teaching this is. Preparing people to go out, to be ready to be in another church, to be able to start a church. This is why we have a great burden here. And from the from the very beginning of this ministry. We really want to be about teaching. Because preaching ministry is what everybody sees and it is important, but you only grow so much from somebody standing up here speaking and nobody else saying anything. The teaching, the real growth in discipling comes through this didactic formula of sitting down, taking time, walking through convincingly lecturing, yeah, but also a time to instruct, to love, and not only just teaching and leaving, but they really were discipling. They were teaching these people more about how to follow Christ, not just, here's here's the important stuff in the Bible, but disciple-making is a lifelong, for them it was a year long, but it's a long-term um. Example, loving, spending time with people, discipling. I mean, look what Jesus did with the 12 he discipled. Now, that was three years. He spent a lot of time with them. He taught them. He spent time with them. That's disciple making. And I think that Luke goes on to let us know here that one year this was done to maybe instruct the readers of his account that some sort of plan was in place. In other words, after a year, they would be gone, possibly teaching themselves, being the teachers. And I point that out to say, and I'm I'm hoping and praying going forward, we've begun talking about this a little bit, but that our teaching and training will have a goal and a strategy to somehow in some rel- relatively doable amount of time that people who come to church here can leave here knowing what it means to be a follower of Christ and knowing how to teach somebody else. If not, I think we're wasting our time. If we're just doing church. Then in a few years it'll just be a roller coaster. it'll be up and down as long as we do things people like they'll come we don't do the things people like they won't come the typical stuff we don't want the typical stuff I'm willing to I'm willing to have a small fellowship of people that are learning and being discipled and taught in order to send them out to do who knows what kind of things I feel like in a lot of ways that's how we have the best chance to complete the commission and go you therefore in all the worlds. It's not us necessarily individually getting on a plane and traveling. Maybe we do, but maybe God raises up disciples from within us. They go places that we can't go. All of us don't get to go. I think too much time has been spent trying to make people believe you've got to reach the whole world. You've got to be a part of the ministry in the whole world right this very minute or you're not being faithful. But I I don't see, what I see in the New Testament was a patient, a year long, several times a day, that's a lot. A patient, making a disciple and then letting the hand of the Lord do what it does and send people where it does, where where they are to go. Now, the only thing that Luke doesn't do for us, which would have been nice, was to say, and here's exactly what Saul and Barnabas did for a year and exactly what they taught. So if you just take this and do the same thing. So we kind of have to discern what's best and what needs to be taught and what is all the things that Jesus taught and how do we get that into people. But the Lord recorded for us what we needed. So I'm not questioning the inspiration of the Lord. Uh, of the. Word of God or what was put in and what was left out. I trust that God knows what he's doing there. We don't necessarily have a manual, but the Holy Spirit is ours and he is our teacher. If we teach whatsoever Jesus has commanded, that's not hard to do. Go through the New Testament, find whatsoever he's commanded. He's authored this. We teach and train with this goal in mind, just making people ready to do ministry in case we're not here, right? I was just talking this uh, last, yesterday, um, about a church that I know of uh, where the pastor had served 40 plus years, nearly 50 years. He retired. There's literally nobody there to take over. So they have to form a pulpit committee, they have to go out and search for something brand new. Something different. And this is not me throwing rocks at this person. But I'm thinking this is the kind of ministry we're used to doing. The kind that can't survive after the main dude's gone. And that is not the New Testament. Because daily, some of these dudes were meant being beheaded, being put in prison. And the whole point was they were making disciples. You kill one and there's, there's already five more, so you're too late. And I think if God would just give us that kind of um, discerning heart and mind, how do we get people from here to there in the short amount of time possible? We only have so much time, right? I think about our kids and our, uh, you know, I think about, I have a kid that will next year be a senior in high school. That's crazy, but I've got more. How long do we have to train people and teach them before they're sort of technically gone? And I think uh, there's this, yeah, they were willing to be patient, but there was some haste. We got to get this done. So I guess in short, I, I ask you to pray with us and as the leaders here that God will show us a clear method of tra- training and teaching. We teach what we have, meanwhile, but that God will show us and not through some kind of new revelation, but just as we study his word, God, what about your word do we need to get into people as fast as possible? All the main things that need to be get be given. And that you will pray with us along that line. And also pray for yourself and ask God how you need to be involved in this. That we are able to narrow our focus and purpose to be doing this. To transform our minds, as the Bible says, to have the mind of Christ. Not be conformed to this world. I believe it's because of this teaching ministry that was going on that the Bible says to us that the church was first called Christians here at Antioch. They didn't call themselves that. That was the world around them called. The church didn't refer to themselves as Christians until the second century. So this was the world saying these are Christ followers and we know because they're doing what Christ did to those that were around him. They're teaching him. They're teaching them the things he taught them. I think it's more than coincidence that these disciples were called Christ followers in Antioch this intensive teaching was taking place. So gaining converts through preaching the gospel is one thing and it's important but a life sold out to the teaching all things whatsoever I've commanded you is another thing entirely. It seems that even the pagans in Antioch noted a different level of this movement because of the teaching ministry that's taking place. Probably because they were walking out of here fully Equipped and ready to teach others. Man, that's what we want to do, right? I desperately want to have something that's going to outlive me. And the Lord allowed us to start this ministry. That was one of the things I just want above all else. I don't want this to be built on me. I don't want it to die with me. It needs to keep going. And the only way to do that is to make real disciples. One preacher said one time, it's better to train 10 people than to do the work of 10 people. But it's harder. It is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I ask that you would give us grace and show us how to do this. We've been trying to do it. And we want to do it better. And so I pray that you would guide and direct us by your word and through the spirit of the living God, that we be faithful, not only proclaiming the gospel and witnessing when we can, but that we be faithful, making disciples and teaching, training the hard things, teaching people what they need to know about Christ. I really believe that the greatest way to avoid severe heartache and um, just utter sadness in this life is to know the things that the word of God teaches about who you are and then who we are in Christ and it doesn't necessarily mean everything will be perfect and all our problems will go away but it certainly is a better way of dealing with the heartaches and the hardships of this life than just getting baptized saved and baptized and then never learning anything about who you are so I pray you would help us do that be faithful in it and give us minds to receive the word and hearts that desire to know it. We pray this in Jesus' name.